Um, today, I wanted to talk about views on European competitiveness and uh, some changes that are going on there. And I'm writing our uh, latest investment outlook as we speak, and it's really fascinating to reflect on the first six months of this year is uh, the things that have gone on just will boggle the mind when you see them uh, listed out. But we've had major bank failures in the US and Europe. We have ongoing tensions with China, China property bubbles, another debt ceiling fight, inflation problems, and the realization that climate transition is going to be much more difficult and expensive than we thought. Um, and just add to the uh, to the end of the quarter on a high note, you have the Wagner Group uh, attempting a, a coup of some sort in Russia, which we're trying to sort out what that means. Um, and then I think one of the most important changes that has occurred uh, over the first half of this year is in the global system is the reindustrialization of the global economy, which we've touched on in the past. And I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because it is having a very negative impact on two of the former leading producers, Germany and China. And I think its uh, implications are, are broad and will be with us for uh, the next decade. So I wanna talk about the competitiveness issues in China. The IFO re, uh, uh, survey came out today and it was another negative number. And one of the quotes from the report was, uh, what is clear is that the optimism at the, uh, at the start of the year seems to have given way to a, sense of re a new sense of reality. And I think the issues are Europe dodged a bullet with the weather that they've had, um, but now we're facing a, a much more difficult uh, path going forward. So let's uh, go right into it. So last week we talked about the divergences that are going on as reflected by central bank policy, where the US has paused with uh, uh, some projections for higher rates, the ECB um, dealing with persistent um, uh, core inflation, headline inflation has come down, but there's a fear that headline inflation is going to pick up in Europe. And then in China, they were cutting rates, which is a reflection of some of the challenges that their economy is facing due to some domestic policies, due to their uh, uh, growing debt problems, uh, but also due to uh, just the way the world's evolving right now and the shift that they've they've taken. So um, when you think about Europe, their problems are many. Uh, to be very blunt about it, they have uh, a low growth issue, as you can see, looking at just a slightly uh, higher growth this year, but um, uh, but not but very anemic and below what they need. And I can be confident that their debt costs are rising at a faster rate than their their growth is. And part of that is because inflation is still high and well above the target that they have. So this is gonna be very difficult for them to get to a more uh, appropriate level. So I wanna do a share report on European competitiveness from uh, uh, the conference board and the business roundtable of executives. And really they're, they're saying there are a number of short-term positives uh, and intermediate term negatives, but I think these are more negatives than positives when you think about it. And that is because sales in Europe, while they're uh, over the next six months are projected to be better, sales from outside Europe are supposed to be better than that. Um, capital investment in Europe is going to be um, you know, pretty good, but capital investment outside of Europe is going to be higher, and that's not good. And then you think about employment in Europe is not going to be great, and employment outside Europe is going to be better. So they're really looking at a setup that um, you know, they've done okay, but it's, it looks like things are going to start to get worse. 
And when you think about it, only 9% of, uh, of executives see the EU industry, industrial part of the economy, getting better, that none of them see it strengthening significantly, 9% see it strengthening, but 84% see it either weakening or weakening significantly. That's not a great sign. And that leads to uh, the view from the European Roundtable that 57% of the CEOs are going to be shifting investments or operations or both across the Atlantic in the next two years. And the reasons they listed are, are several. Uh, at the top of the list is geopolitical tensions, obviously, but they're still battling with an inflation issue backed by a fear of uh, a return of very difficult energy prices. And when you look at what's going on around Europe, you have water temperatures around uh, uh, the UK and, and Ireland up anywhere from four to nine degrees above normal temperature. You have uh, big problems around uh, with heat around big parts of, of the world. And now you have uh, a, one of the big uh, 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 natural gas plants in Europe is in the UK is being shut down because of concerns about seismic activity. At the same time, you have these disruptions going on. So I think the energy issue is gonna be real, but you also have a skills shortages even though you have very low unemployment um, and you're going to continue to see these supply chain disruptions. But I think one of the big things that CEOs are worried about is the lack of uh, comparable investment schemes to what the US has with the IRA and what China has been doing all along. And then when you get really to the core of, of what those incentive schemes would be, it's about having access to the raw materials that you need that are so essential for where things are going forward. So I think the energy transition, the uh, need to be competitive on, a, uh, on uh, advanced technologies and the carving out of their industrial base because of some of the flawed policies and other uh, domestic issues really set up for uh, some challenges for Europe going forward. Not that there aren't pockets of really interesting opportunities and in the venture space, there's a number, but when capital leaves, so do jobs. And when you have a inflationary issue, growth is what gets you past the inflation problems uh, or helps to upset them. And I think that's one of the issues that Europe's facing. So they're talking about moving part of their investments uh, to North America or, or to uh, parts of Asia, ex-China. But when you look at this uh, chart here, the dark blue areas are, um, would you be increasing uh, investments away from Europe uh, to these regions in the next two years? And um, not much is going to China. And as you can see, a lot of yeses for uh, the US, some for Asia, ex-China. Um, but even uh, when you look at this, this is a really a remake of how production works around the world. It'll take years to affect these changes, but the changes are being felt now by companies and they're starting to make plans to address it. And that's being backed by private sector spending uh, in the US that's going about supporting it. And just to give you a sense, private sector spending in support of the IRA and other acts is over 400 uh, billion already and continues to grow. So we see Europe being carved out with particularly Germany getting hit hard from its industrial base. And then what steps in to fill the void? They were very strong in finance for a while. And as we've known for the last uh, 12 years or so, the finance industry has been under pressure in Europe and, 
as we saw with the UBS Credit Suisse uh, merger, there's still problems in, in that area as well. So what industry is going to lead Europe out of it? I think that's one of the questions that um, uh, executives are going to be facing. I think this polycrisis environment that we've talked about in the past is creating these distortions that we're working through and divergences that'll be felt for some time. And we're not clear on all the implications of them. But one of them is that, um, that money is going to move and it's going to move to areas that have more dependability and better visibility and certainty. Europe's benefited from the warm weather, but seasons change. And we think that we're setting up for a more difficult fall from an inflation perspective due to weather problems. While inflation's already too high in Europe, um, getting it down, I think, is going to continue to be a problem, which means the central bank is going to be forced to continue to raise rates. Um, how far they have to go is too hard to determine just yet. But these competitive challenges aren't easy to overcome, and they're very difficult to reverse, particularly when you have fracturing inside the EU about what the right policies are to get you there. And you have very divergent needs of the different governments to take care of their own people and play a role in the global system or in the European system first, and then the global system second. So to me, this sets up for the U.S. continuing to attract capital flows and jobs. There'll be beneficiaries in other parts of, of the world, but this is not a great setup for the European community. And these wide divergences will be reflected in the earnings of companies and the profits of companies as we see going forward. So I think we're in a very challenging environment where um, this reset of rates, this reset of the uh, production base for the global economy is going to go on over the next decade. And you're really seeing how this is playing out with government policies and how corporations are adapting to it. And you're seeing the challenge from another perspective, too, because their own market is under pressure. They're one of their best export markets. China is becoming more introverted and has other issues with it around uh, business decisions. And it's leading companies like Siemens to figure out mainly a dual approach of how you face off in China, how you do business in China. AstraZeneca is having the same uh, discussion. Do they break off their Chinese business into two businesses so that they can deal with the politics and the economics of uh, the global, the changes in the global system right now? So I think we're in a period where um, as Peter Drucker has said, uh, uh, the greatest danger in, in times of turbulence isn't the turbulence, it's to act with yesterday's logic. And I think what he was referring to there is if you think this is going to be the same problem as we had in the past, for 20 years, Germany has been and China have been the really the production manufacturing engines for the global economy, and that has changed They'll still be part of this uh, solution, but a lesser part, and that's going to create new opportunities for a lot of businesses. So, Mark, I'm going to stop there, and uh, we can get back to the uh, issues of Russia, which um, I had this report done before before the uh, invasion really took place and was resolved, uh, but happy to open this up for discussion and comments. Yeah, any questions, comments on the above? Yeah, Stephen, um, uh, you're talking about the banks. You just mentioned uh, uh, Credit Suisse, but um, I'm not sure how many people realize that in Europe, the banks are a much, much larger uh, player in 
in the uh, financial sector than the U.S. Um, just give us a, a, some feedback there. What's the state of banks vis-a-vis uh, European opportunities, companies, economies? I think if you go back to the financial crisis, when it hit the U.S., our approach was basically partial nationalization, recapitalization, and getting their uh, their balance sheets back in better form. And Europe took a different approach, um, and it wasn't a consistent approach. So you have very different outcomes from it. And you've seen this with their uh, banks. My former firm, Deutsche Bank, has gone through several iterations of what their business model is going to be, what their uh, financial, what their balance sheets look like, and and where they're going to grow their business going forward. And I think that I think the the approach taken by governments back in uh, the financial crisis is really part of what set it up. The U.S. did, um, to its credit and to Jamie Dimon's credit, I believe, a very good job of acting quickly to recapitalize. And Europe was did not take the same approach, so you have very different um, uh, setups there for the financial strength of the different banks. I do think you're right, though. We have we're way more overbanked than other places are, so there was some diffusion of it, but the concentration risk is higher in Europe as well. And I think that is a is part of the problem. But I think the bigger issue is um, uh, the inflation pressures against where's the growth going to come from for Europe. And I think when you're sitting there thinking, how do we move this uh, economy forward? It needs a whole new wave of innovation, but it needs a industrial policy that can be supported across the system. And that's very difficult to get with their uh different needs of the different member nations. So I'll stop there, if that helps, Andrew. Um, yeah, the only, the only add-on is the non-bank financial sector in Europe is microscopic next to the United States, private equity, venture capital, direct lending, you name it. So when the banks are weak, um, uh, is there the support for the innovation and, and initiatives you talk about um, uh, needing? That that was really where I was going. Yeah, well, I think that's I think the the fiscal position of most of the countries in Europe is not great to support big spending right now, um, and you need to get the return on investment very quickly for the population to be okay with that spend if it's not coming back directly to them. So this is where the social aspect of what's going on in Europe comes into play, and why immigration policies and the like. Are so important as well. So I, I think there are real structural issues that won't be quickly overcome. That doesn't mean there aren't real pockets of opportunity. And Europe did much better in the first half of the year than most people thought, in part because we dodged the bullet on, on weather. But there are there are pockets of opportunity developing. It's just but, a question of scaling them and finding them. So this was a topic that you guys both missed uh, in London. Uh, of course, you had you had the Susan Payne's arguing for the UK innovation versus the Europeans, and Europeans have bigger, they arguably do have bigger budgets than the UK to go after deep tech. And you know, we were talking about AI, right? Who's got the compute power? Who has the ability to rally that? Um, and it should be an opportunity because it's a mainly English language led AI, open AI. Anyway, then that combined with you know maybe the winter is mild, but this summer is hot in Europe. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of give and pull. 
Anyone? I don't. I'm trying to, Bill, you were there. Any takeaways from UK versus Europe? Or anyone else who was there? <laughs> Even if you weren't there. There we go. Um, uh, yep. You're on. Okay. Okay, good. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think in, in looking at, at, at the data, um, Europe seems to be sort of managing through the inflation situation a little bit better than the UK. You know, as, as I noted on that one chart, um, the UK in, inflation is still very high, and yet the expectations are for it to come down dramatically, you know, even as, as early as the end of the year. Uh, and given the fact that several significant sectors that contribute to inflation are continuing to run in double digits, I just see, you know, I, I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know how, the, you know, I, I hope, but I don't know how they're going to do it. Whereas in Europe, you know, it's, it's a little bit better. It's not super, but it's a little bit better. So I think that that from a from a very kind of fundamental macro standpoint on on that end especially that Europe's got a little bit of an advantage uh, that's there. Let me uh, put your the, the presentation you're referring to. Sure, so you have the benefit of it. So let's see, I've got it. Mark, I don't, I don't know if Janan's on the call, but one of the other factors to think about is the uh, how much how many science papers are being produced by different areas in terms of who's going to take the lead in these areas in the US and China have such a wide lead over everyone else in terms of research coming out in uh, and patent development and things like that, that Europe is lagging pretty significantly. Right. Yeah, there you go. One, there was that one, this oh, one, this, yeah. this was the one I thought was interesting, China. But good. You you want to you guide me? Oh. If you want to no, no, no. That's that, that's okay. So the previous two charts sort of illustrated the UK inflation thing. But to your point on China, um, yes. So you can see what twenty, you know, twenty plus almost. Hang on. There we go. Almost forty years of near ten, near above and below ten percent. GDP growth. I mean, that's, that is just astounding when you sit back and, and think about that. But of course, you know, over the last decade or so, you can see how the chart is beginning to trend downward. Um, I think that perhaps maybe, maybe with, without, without substance, we just got conditioned to the fact that the Chinese were able to engineer that. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, that's a roaring economy and it, it just can't go on forever. And I think what we're seeing is sort of the, the maturing of, of the Chinese economy. Um, the fact that, you know, all the, all the offshoring took place during that period, during this, you know, these latter uh, decades, um, that has essentially begun to reverse itself. Uh, China is, is attempting to transition itself from an export led country to a consumer driven country. So there's a big transition that's happening there. So there are a lot of factors that are operative that would point to slightly lower GDP. I think that regardless of the fact that it has, you know, begin, that it has slowed 
and it has been moving down towards the 5% range, it's still better than, than any other Western country uh, that we have. So it's, it's no less a dynamo, but it's, it still is. I think that, you know, as we've said many times, uh, you know, on, on the call here, that the political situation is absolutely paramount in terms of what things are going to look like going forward. So that's a that's a huge question mark and could impact things regardless or either, you know, sig- significantly, not regardless, but significantly. You know, Bill, the interesting thing with China is the uh, as the world money supply has come down, which you've touched on quite a bit in the past, you get um, the one is falling faster than the domestic money supply is growing. So China is likely importing inflation and exporting deflation. Um, and have been for several months now. So yeah. you actually have a reversal here of, of what people were fearing with the supply chain problems. And now you have uh, China, because of the currency moves, um, creating a exporting of deflation. Yeah, that, that, mix. right. No, that's an excellent point, Stephen. And um, yeah, and, and what you just said, in addition to the money supply coming down, they're having to uh, ease up on on the RMB uh, for domestic reasons. Yep, and and that's you know w- once again as as you just said that leads to an export of deflation out there, which is going to be very helpful for the rest of the world. And I I think the change that was made in the in the economy too um, in the Chinese economy is probably the most underappreciated uh, event that's happened this year, and that everyone thought they were going to reopen as a global exporter instead of reopening on a domestically focused uh, setup, which is why commodities and other things have underperformed in the first part of the year. So uh, Adam and then Andrew. Yeah. um, What do, what do we know about the Chinese banks in their loan portfolios and default rates on the loan portfolios? Does anyone have any, any, uh, window or thought on that? Uh, it's, it's a really good question, Adam. Um, I don't have information on, on the banks. I do know sort of qualitatively that the regional balance sheets are not in good shape. And yeah. that's, that's why you're seeing a lot of the actions that are being taken right now is to try to ease some pressure uh, off of that. But, but the provinces the provinces have got a problem and they're they're trying to solve it, um, but it's not easy. It's also hard to separate out the on-balance sheet and off-balance sheet government debt and where that actually ends up residing. Do this, does it flow through the banks or not? And the, the debts of the local governments are probably the biggest issue, uh, as well as the property developers there. So who gets who's holding the bag on that is less clear there than it even is Transparency and balance sheets of banks is not great to begin with. Um, I think it's even more challenging there. And that's certainly going to have an impact on their growth. Yeah. That so away from that. Um it yeah, it 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 should and it can, and it depends on whether or not uh sort of the federal government, if you will, is going to supply the credit impulse correct necessary. To, you know, to alleviate that. I want to go off over to Andrew Randak, but just maybe, Bill, on the China, maybe your 
former colleagues from your former shop could have some insight. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Invite them on to uh, to talk to it. Andrew, good to see you. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Great to see everyone. Thank you, Stephen. As usual, awesome uh, commentary. Um, about Europe, I was doing some research uh, instigated by J.P. Morgan's mid-year report, which I highly recommend people read for the massive amount of uh, faults in it more than anything else. Um, but one of the things that J.P. Morgan is pushing is that people increase their international exposure, uh, EFA exposure. So I started delving into the companies, NIFA, the five largest companies in that index uh, are all European. Uh, only one is in the tech sector. You guys were talking about who's got the money to pay for AI uh, research, UK versus the EU. Um, that single company is ASML, which a lot of people have heard of before, had a total sales last year of $24 billion. That's total sales. Um, that compares poorly to Amazon at 524, uh, Apple at 385, Microsoft at just shy of 200. So, you know, the big behemoths in America are selling in a month uh, or in a few weeks what the single largest uh, technology company in Europe is, is doing. Uh, and they're selling it at returns on invested capital in the 30s and 40s percent. Um, no government in Europe or in the UK or company in Europe has got the firepower uh, to come up against that. I mean, the, the, the data doesn't lie on that one. Sorry, Europe. And Andrew, maybe in the healthcare area is the one place that they have the wherewithal and the size of companies in Europe. Yeah, that- Novo Nordisk. AstraZeneca are are standouts. Uh, And uh, Grant, all these are great companies and they've got great returns on capital and they've got nice growth rates and and all the rest, but it's, you know, I mean, uh, you're you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. Uh, And um, I think that they they really don't have a prayer uh, just by the the scale of the problem. And it really is a question, can they build the venture community against that backdrop that would uh, allow it to really uh, flourish and compete against the other big venture areas around the world? You know, I've seen a bunch of venture pitches in the last six to nine months out of Europe. Uh, uh, Most of them were fintech oriented uh, from family offices and multifamily offices over there. And almost all of them had as part of the major part of their business plan was an expansion into Latin America. Uh, that the European market wasn't enough uh, for them to make the money. Are you talking your book, Andrew? No, I'm not on Latin America at all. I'm actually, uh, I have almost no exposure to Latin America. Thank God. Love Uh, the music, love the people, love the food. Um, That's about it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Andy, you had your hand up a second ago. No, I was I was just going to make a quick comment that the big fangs we talk about in ASML aren't necessarily great comparisons. They're, they're the lone player in in chip lithography, um, and it's really American tech, to be honest. Um, I was an investor, and I own a huge chunk of Simer Laser, which is now part of ASML. Um, and it, but it's very relevant to global discussion, especially where AI and all this concerns, but I don't think it's that relevant to the European conversation. 
Yeah, no, I agree. That's 100% correct. Uh, what I'm just trying to show is the scale of the money that's even in that industry whatsoever is so small in Europe um, relative to the United States. Don't disagree. I also think the when the U.S. put the, whether you like them or not, some of the programs we put in place, the IRA Act, the Chips and Science Act, and all those, that has a that covers a, a lot of our economy with that. When Europe does it, it covers usually the country. And it's very hard to get something across Europe that's going to give them the scale to compete. So I think that's one of the challenges, too, of the fiscal and monetary systems being separate is uh, creates some challenges from a competitive perspective as well. And it's been that way. It's the part of the design flaws of the EU from the start.